This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, Later on this week in the United Kingdom, there will be three by-elections. The Tories were previously in control of these seats. Boris Johnson in a West London constituency of Uxbridge and South Ruislip. There's a by-election also in Selby and Ainsty, which is in North Yorkshire. And the Somerset seat of Somerton and Frome will also be electing a new MP. In the case of Johnson and Somerset, uh, David Warburton, they both um, resigned in some part of disgraceful circumstances. Warburton admitted taking cocaine and there are charges of unwanted sexual advances from two women, which have led to his suspension from the Conservative Party. As far as we know, Mr. Nigel Adams, MP for Selby and Ainsty, is just a victim of Boris Johnson's resignation honours lists, which um, was pretty extensive. To discuss what's happening in Britain, also with uh, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, we're joined now by John Kampfner, who is a very distinguished British journalist, uh, an author and broadcaster. His latest book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, has been very well received, and he's currently writing a book about Berlin, which will be published, we understand, later this year. John, thank you very much for joining us. The decline of the Tory party, and it's almost disintegrated at this point, is one of the most remarkable things I've seen. They were really the most esteemed party for getting elected and re-elected in Europe almost. But now things have gone south in a big way. And as well as these three by-elections, there are two more, I think, to come. Uh, the predictions are that they'll lose all three of these. Yeah, hi, Eamon. Um, I'm old enough to remember, I'm sure you're not, you're being, being a young a young strapling yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the era around 95, 96, 97, the end of the John Major, era yes. and everybody was waiting for for tony blair um and you can always tell that when governments and diplomats 
embassies, security services, not to mention, of course, journalists, not to mention, of course, businesses, all seem to effortlessly move to where the power is or the power will be. And um, I know that because I was trying to arrange for a diplomat to try and see Keir Starmer. And I was told, sort of, frankly, he's not important enough. And, you know, the list is very, very long. Everyone is knocking at Keir Starmer's door. There is just a view, an assumption. And I think increasing, I've always been wary of, of um, complacency, but I think it is absolutely dead cert now that he will be the next prime minister um, in a way that it was with Tony Blair. But there are also, and the sense that in John Major's time, I mean, I had a lot of time for John Major, um, but that was just a sense of the unraveling. There was sleaze all around. The Eurosceptics, as they were called then, were up to no good. There was just a party in disintegration after so many years of Margaret Thatcher and John Major. It's exactly the same now in that respect, although simply worse. When you go from David Cameron and the coalition with the Lib Dems, which now seems incredibly sort of grown up and stable, through to a bit of David Cameron and his terrible decision to have the referendum, through Theresa May, through the disgrace that was Boris Johnson and the Looney Tunes that was Liz Truss, and now a sort of certain sense of stability, but a sort of stability, a sort of stagnant stability in Rishi Sunak. He's trying to do his best. He's guarding his right flank with all his immigration stuff and everything else. But I think he's just looking and thinking, right, well, when this is all over, I'm going to try and get as respectable job as I can. And I will then go back to the city and earn squillions, which is basically his his strongest talent. And he wants to make sure that his historic reputation will be, he did his best, but uh, his best was never going to be good enough in the circumstances. The question about the Tory party is this. I mean, an awful lot of what might be called one nation Tories left after Brexit, really. People who were moderate, conservative, and they left the party. The party has, to some extent, or maybe to a very great extent, been taken over by a right-wing group, hasn't it? Yes, it has, completely. And even in Thatcher's day, there were the big beasts who were not of her ilk, people like Michael Heseltine, Geoffrey Howe. They were sort of, in different degrees, elbowed out, but they were still important voices in the Tory party. There Ken are none. Clark is another one. Ken from Clark, that. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and they're absolutely all, not just those people, but there are no successors to them. Uh, you know, uh, David Cameron had a few, Amber Rudd, uh, Philip Hammond, a few others like that, who seemed not particularly exciting, but at least moderately sensible. They've all gone as well. There are very, very, very few grown-ups or non as David Cameron once called them, swivelites, you know, just sort yes. of um, crazy right-wingers. But, I mean, it's important to say that this is a ten- tendency all over the world, pretty yes, much. Yes, indeed. Um, yep. What were mainstream Christian Democrat centre-right parties morphing into either far-right or alt-right parties? Yes. Obviously, you know, in, in Italy, you've got Giorgio Maloney, uh, in Spain, the, the PP, the the once respectable Conservative Party, is about to jump into bed with Vox. 
the, the sort of neo-fascist party, uh, Hungary, Poland, you and I have done all this before. Marine yes, Le Pen and Sweden in France, as well. Sweden, the far-right rise in, in Germany with the AFD. And what these tendencies do, and, and it's very interesting, what is far-right? What is sort of neo-Nazi far-right into alt-right? Yes. Uh, and alt-right is sort of Nigel Farage. And uh, these terms are both important, but they're also irrelevant in the sense that they're all merged into one big uh, soup now. But what they all do is that they influence all the other parties and they drag them all yes. rightwards. They're dragging, they've dragged the Republican Party in the United States completely rightwards. They've dragged the Tory party. And what's interesting is that the Labour Party and other social democrat parties around Europe do the same thing. What will happen in the Netherlands, in your opinion, with uh, Rutter's, the collapse of the Paul Rutter's coalition? He was one of the most, um, shall we say, influential mm. leaders in Europe. The he longest decided, serving. After, yeah. after Merkel went, he was by far the longest serving. Of, yeah, of, uh, and he's much. decided to leave politics. Yeah, and uh, I mean, in a, in a way, that's kind of understandable. He's been around for more than a decade. I think everybody has their shelf life. Uh, his coalition, he's been sort of clinging with his by his fingertips to different coalitions with him in charge for several years now. A lot of the argument is around immigration, uh, Netherlands, you know, the classic discussions around what is too much. If it is too much, how do you stop it? At the same time, how do you deal with labor shortages? It's exactly the same problems. And this is a problem for Britain as well, because there are labor shortages there. Is Brexit the catalyst for the change in the Tory party, or was Brexit inevitable given the kind of sea change that you've described? I've always said from the get-go the same thing, which is Brexit was never the cause of anything. Yes. Brexit was the reflection yes. of many things, many things going on for a long time. Now, the main thing that it was reflective of was, of course, Britain's permanent anxiety about its place in the world and whether it is a, a properly European country or not. Uh, you know, that is the uh, the main question. But along with that, there is the wider question of what kind of society is it? Does it want to be a small state, low state uh, country? Does it want to be more European in its approach to public services, welfare state? And it's always been stuck. And it's never quite known which it is. It doesn't really know its place in the world, the royal family, all of that. The Commonwealth just noticed today that the Australians have cancelled the Commonwealth Games for 2026. Yes. And there's just a general assumption. The whole thing is ridiculous, particularly the Commonwealth Games, but the Commonwealth in general. And with the Queen, anyway, we could go on and on and on about the wider questions of where Britain's place in, in the world is. What you can say for sure is that Britain at the moment and British politics are very, very unhappy. Yes, and there is a, an interesting contrast to make between uh, Keir Starmer and Tony Blair. I think, um, as you say, Labour looks pretty certain to win the next general election for all kinds of reasons, uh, not least at 13 years and the experience of Tories in power. But he seems very frightened. I, I, I would describe him. I saw him on television at the weekend. I've seen him in the, in the parliament, mm. his questions. 
he's afraid to talk about Brexit, to think about Brexit, to, to even mention uh, Brexit. But he's also said, for example, in the last 48 hours, that he will leave in place some of the social welfare, reactionary social welfare charges that the Tories have put in place. And unlike Blair who uh, and Brown, they... They changed Clause 4, if you remember. Yeah. That was a moment in Labour Party history. It was to do with nationalisation or renationalisation. They also, you will remember, John, that the Sun was a mortal enemy of the Labour Party. Mm. And one of the things that Rupert Murdoch persuaded Tony Blair to do was to fly to Australia to, address, yeah. to, to address his workers. It was an amazingly brazen and you could say brave and radical move by Blair. He wasn't timid, was he? No, and, and to be honest, a lot of this dynamic is exactly the same, Eamon. I mean, Rupert Murdoch uh, had a summer party in London this year and uh, the entire sort of Labour front bench went went marching in, in unison. Really? Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> the Spectator magazine, the sort of Bible, much more now than the Telegraph, the Bible of of the of not just the Conservative Party, but right-wing thinking. Loads of Labour people turned up for that. And in that respect, I don't necessarily... I mean, flying halfway around the world, you wouldn't get away with that now because of the environment more than any, you know, uh, <laughs> yes. green issues. Um, but... You know, the sense of uh, supping with the enemy is, is, is a perfectly reasonable thing to do, in my view, because yes. you never know when you might need people and you might as well, uh, rather than, than being passionate. But there's a much wider set of questions around. So, I mean, there, there are many similarities between Starmer and Blair. Blair's arguments were pessimistic in two or cynical in two respects. One was his view was Britain is a big and small C conservative country, always was and always will be. Yes. Um, the second one is the more you tack to the right, the more right wing voters you get and the left has got nowhere else to go. Yes. And, and therefore <laughs> you might annoy people, but you know, so what when it comes to, do you really want five more years of this sort of lamentable Tory regime or do you want something that might be a bit sort of nothingy but it won't be like that uh you'll go you'll go for the latter option and, and that's and starmer has been trimming pretty much or or taking a sledgehammer to pretty much anything that looks remotely left wing um whether it's on immigration whether it's on public services he's agreed to stick to the cap that the conservatives imposed on child benefit two children only all these things um he he's absolutely slashed labor's environmental pledges. Now, why is he doing that? He's he's not a bad person, Starmer. But the issue is, and the classic thing is, and we'll come to Brexit, why give his enemies any ammunition yes. um, with which to hit him? Just basically sail in below the radar, say nothing offensive. People will vote for you in spades because they're so furious and disappointed um, with the Conservatives. Now, as an election-winning strategy that is tried and tested and it is successful and it's unarguable, the big question is, what would he then be like in government? Yes. And what Blair was, was a mixture of things. And Blair was basically brought 
not brought down in actual terms because he won one more election, but brought down reputationally because of Iraq. Of course. And it's yes. one of the great counterfactuals, one of the great sort of history or politics essay questions, you know, what would Tony, legacy, Tony Blair's legacy have been had it not been for Iraq? And obviously it would have been much more favorable. I remember all the way at the time criticizing Blair beyond Iraq, saying, is that it? Is that really all it is? And people like Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson and others used to berate me as saying, you know, be grateful for what you've got. Be careful what you wish for, because things will only get worse. And it, they were right yes. in that respect. I mean, from Gordon Brown, who was a great disappointment, through to Cameron, blah, 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 beyond all the, all the conservative terrible prime ministers that uh, followed Cameron. It has been worse. And I noticed that uh, Polly Toynbee uh, in The Guardian, the, you know, The Guardian is ever the sort of place yes. where, where Labour... Polly is the queen. Well, exactly. And, and yeah. sort of the doyen. And there's been perpetual discussions, just as there were in the mid-90s in The Guardian, about, you know, should you just belt up and just wish Starmer well and hope think that he will be a little bit more radical, um, or should you criticize him in advance? Her argument is very much the former. And she said, she was saying today in her column, sort of everybody cut him some slack. And that's correct. The, the problem is when you get into a certain mindset of winning an election, you then tend to stay because in the same mindset, because your thoughts turn to the subsequent yes. election. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, it, it, I think Starmer's more grim reality is based in a certain truth. There was, in, in and around 1997, just so much more optimism about the world. I mean, yes. terrible things were happening in the Balkans, terrible things had happened in Rwanda and elsewhere, but Britain was comparatively wealthy. John Major had actually left a, a pretty good exchequer. Labour had money to spend. Britain is now, you know, verily broke and down in the dumps. And that, and what Starmer is trying to say is, look, you guys, you know, we've got a long slog ahead to restore the nation's finances. I'm not going to throw money at things. And whilst you're at it, I'm not going to change too much, but I just want people to appreciate a government that's more serious and grown up. It doesn't set the, the pulses racing. No, but he is also, is he not, John, dealing with a party that until relatively recently was governed by Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, that's and, very, yeah it's totally right that you bring that in. Yeah. He feels very strongly, although you know he didn't criticise Corbyn when he was in the shadow cabinet, uh, when he was Brexit shadow secretary. Um, but you can leave that to one side. He had to do what he had to do. He believes, and the people around him believe passionately that, and he's, and they're right. I mean, Corbyn was a, was a disgrace for Labour in a number of ways. Corbyn, yes. first of all, did nothing to prevent Brexit, but secretly or semi-secretly embraced it. Yes. He then pushed Labour so far to the left that you know, you have to be remarkably terrible as a politician for Boris Johnson to win with a large majority in 2019 yes. with the country so divided. And even some Remainers 
and sensible people in the middle voted for Johnson because they were so freaked out at the prospect of Corbyn. I think some of them regret that now. But if, again, another counterfactual question, if Labour had had in 2019 a sensible leader, what would have happened in that election? Yes, and there was the whiff of anti-Semitism, or maybe more than a whiff, from the Corbyn wing of the Labour Party as well. Yeah, although I do think some of that's overblown. There was, but it's just sort of, you just have to think of Corbyn as Corbyn was, as Corbyn has returned to being. A sort of um, wind-jacketed person on the stump, sort of going on about Nicaragua and Palestine and, and the great classic... Um, agitprop causes of, of the far left always was and all, uh, and always w- will be. But he a pound shop, Michael Foot. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Michael Foot had a more endearing. Double he did indeed. Yes, than, and, than, and than more of an intellectual. You know, so idea. so uh, you know there was that sort of sense of Corbyn not just hugely damaging the Labour Party, but but thereby allowing in somebody who caused irreparable damage to Britain. And Starmer's anger towards that, I think, is entirely justified. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, in these by-elections that are coming this week, John, the Lib Dems have an opportunity uh, because one of these seats, I think it was the one in Somerset, they, they used to hold... Johnson's seat, he, the majority is, I think, seven and a half thousand or thereabouts. I doubt he's campaigning. They, well, they wouldn't want him anywhere near it. They, they're, right. they're interesting. Um, the, and they're all a little bit reverse of what you imagine. I mean, the, the assumption is the Tories will lose all three. 
And the Tories are saying that themselves. They're expect they're managing expectations down, and whether that's whether they scrape the chart. It's interesting. The one place they might, but I don't think they will scrape through is Johnson's seat, which is weird, and that's nothing to do with Johnson or any legacy, yes. any endearing. It's because, and it's a very sort of local politics issue. The London Mayor Sadiq Khan. Um, is extending the ultra-low emission zone for cars to the London suburbs. And the Tory candidate is making a big play on how outrageous that is for car-driving suburban uh, inhabitants. And it's put the Labour candidate in a difficult position. Yes, And he too, uh, with apparently Starmer looking the other way, has sort of joined that bandwagon and disagreeing with his own, you know, mayor from his own party. I still think he will win. In uh, in Yorkshire, the, you know, once the famous Red Wall, that looks, I mean, Labour's throwing huge resources into that, looks as if they'll win. And in Somerset, I mean, it's interesting, the Lib Dems have traditionally, when they were at their strongest, they were particularly strong in the Southwest. And they are, Labour's basically not campaigning in order not to to split the vote. But the Lib Dems, interestingly, the most pro-European of all the parties, have gone quiet uh, on Brexit for some time now. And it's a fascinating, uh, somebody in the party was explaining it to me. They said they could double the national share of their vote if they were more robust in opposing Brexit stuff. But where they would win the votes wouldn't make any difference to the number of seats that they would win, because Lib Dems have always got many more seats than their shares than, yes. than, than, than share of seats. And so they could make everybody feel better by being more Brexit. But the places they need to win, such as in the southwest of England, uh, have always been historically more Eurosceptic, the fishing industry and, and, and everything else. So they're going a little bit quieter on that, but they should certainly win that one. Now, I just want to ask you two more things, uh, John. One is the significance or otherwise of the Minister for Defence, Ben Wallace, mm. announcing that he would not stand again. He's going to see out this parliament and he's leaving politics. He was, I know, a supporter, a pretty ardent one of Boris Johnson. Yeah, He did seem to my eye, and that's all it was, to be capable and someone you'd want in your party, and someone capable of being, uh, of holding high office. The significance of that, it's said that uh, Joe Biden blocked his bid to be, British government wanted him to be the head of, uh, general secretary of NATO, or whatever the top title is there. If a guy like that is walking away from politics in the prime of his life, really, does it tell us something about politics or the Tory party? And it's suitable. Is it a suitable place? Or indeed, is politics a suitable place for people with real ideas and ability? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, there's always been when a party era is over, there's a lot of people, particularly if they've been around for a while, who head for the door yes. in order to, because, you know, once you've been in government a long time, if you're not particularly young, being in opposition is kind of dull. And you might as well leave it to the next generation. And I'm sure Ben Wallace is looking at either in the private sector or notwithstanding NATO, some other big international job. He's a curiosity. Um, because yeah, he was a supporter of Ben, of, of, 
Boris Johnson. And I just always assume that anybody and everybody who has anything to do with Boris Johnson, you know, must be a dot, 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 choose your word. Yes. Um, and not a complimentary one. Yeah. Um, uh, Wallace was a supporter of Johnson, but he was also a good, until recently, it seems, a good defense secretary. Uh, very strongly supportive and smart about Ukraine. He fought some battles with the Treasury and lost them on defense yes. spending, which obviously is the, you know, is an important part of any defense secretary's job. He made these curious remarks in Vilnius at the last NATO summit, telling the Ukrainians rather peremptorily to be to show more gratitude <laughs> and, and they can't order things as if they're on Amazon, which was a strange sort of set of uh, remarks from somebody who's been quite discreet. It sort of seemed to suggest, well, obviously his frustration had got the better of him, but also he was slightly demob happy. There's always been some political journalists, either spoken or unspoken, have raised eyebrows about why he never stood for the leadership because according to the Tories' own opinion polls done by the website Conservative Home, he's almost always been the most popular minister. Why he hasn't stood in their 143 leadership election campaigns since last Monday, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know. There's always been questions about are there skeletons in the closet or this or that, and nobody knows the answer to that. Maybe it's just unfair and he didn't want it. A final question about the future of the Tory party. Suella Braverman, Cammy Badenoch, people yeah. like that. Is it going to become a hard right populist party and nothing like the John Major party, for example? Or as you pointed out so rightly, the Margaret Thatcher government, which had Heseltine as well as another figure from that time, had a lot of what might be called one nation Tories. There won't be much space in the Suella Braverman led Tory party for uh, one nation Tories, and will it actually go into terminal decline if it does that? Uh, that one's easy to answer, Eamon. Yes, it yeah. will go in an alt right direction, hundred percent. Right. And that's very bad for. It's very bad for us. We have a stake in it. We have a a dog in this fight because Northern Ireland doesn't have a parliament, doesn't have an assembly, yeah. uh, and that has been one of the big casualties of all this Brexit stuff, and Johnson's uh, premiership in particular. Well, I think there's a difference. I mean, Johnson was not just alt-right. Um, no, no. But, but he was also irresponsible. Yes. And the two things don't necessarily go together. You can be alt-right, uh, and you don't have to be Trumpian or Johnsonian. Well, absolutely. And, um, you know, Northern Ireland, we all know, you know, the issues there, powder keg, ungoverned, um, for some time, everybody knows. And, you know, the security services are, are very good at, at trying to put the squeeze on prime ministers. Prime minister, you should be very worried about this and that. And, the other. and I don't worry particularly about Northern Ireland. I think Starmer will be very sensible on it and all of that. But the Tory party will definitely on immigration, on so many issues. They haven't worked out what they are economically, by the way. Are they yes. big, are they big government or are they small government? There's, they, they haven't worked that one out, but on culture war, so-called wedge issues, they will be very much to the right. And yet it doesn't necessarily mean, and this is the the, the uh, alarm bell moment, it, the fact that they're moving far right or alt-right doesn't necessarily mean 
that that's the end of the party in you know by contrast no, going back course, to what we no. were saying at the yeah, beginning yeah. you know is, you know is that the future or at least is that the future alternative Okay, John, we're very grateful to you for joining us from London. Thank you very much indeed, just uh, John Camper. His latest book will be published later this year. It's about uh, Berlin and his book, which I've read, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, is also a very, very good book if you want to understand uh, that particular country. We're grateful to John, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Dory Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.